It's Thursday, July 13th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer. Joining me in studio, we've got Matt Argersinger from Motley Fool Million Dollar Portfolio and Ron Gross from Total Income. Guys, welcome. How you doing? Hey, thanks, Matt. Guys, I'm doing well. And Facebook Live today, so look sharp. Bump it Stand up. Stand up straight. Look sharp. Okay, and let's start with some sharp news, some good news from a retailer. You don't hear that sentence very much. Target, Ron, boosting its earnings forecast. Target also said it expects to see, quote, a modest increase in comparable store sales. Well, well, well. <laughs> Took me by surprise. If you recall, last quarter's results were characterized, I believe, by an analyst, and I stole this, as, quote, less bad. Less bad. Less bad is theoretically somewhat good. And and we seem to see a follow-through here now with Target. Um, so, does this make a trend? I say not yet, but we see a follow-through. And the... Details are light because this is not an earnings release, it's just an earnings guidance boost, but they are seeing an improvement in traffic. And that is somewhat surprising to me. I didn't expect that. The answer is why. We're not at back to school season quite yet. We're at the doldrum lows of the summer. We had Amazon Prime Day. Um, I don't know why the reason, and it's a little head scratching to me. I'm happy for Target. I mean, I, I shop there. I think it's a fine experience. I also um, am quite a bit of an Amazon shopper as well, and will continue to be. Um, so it, it's good for them. They continue to see challenging economic uh, competitive environment, and by that, I'm sure they mean Amazon, although they don't mention Amazon by name. And, and we see Amazon's success with Prime Day. Um, just uh, this week, um, just incredible increase in sales and over last year, and they did continue to kind of take industry by industry and knock it down and and become a really thorn in the side of so many different industries. You know, I think probably apparel is next through uh, Amazon wardrobe. Target really has been able to maintain its composure with respect to apparel for a while. We'll see if that continues. Amazon could go anywhere. We see them talk about concert tickets and pharmaceuticals, and, and who knows where they could go. Okay, so I want to stick on the subject of Amazon. Matt, when we're talking about Target, what is Target's best defense against Amazon? Oh my gosh, that's that's. I think that's an impossible uh, question to answer because I don't think they have one. I mean, I'll just use one example. They have Target Restock, which is Target's experiment with next-day delivery that they're rolling out and testing in their hometown of Minneapolis. As an Amazon Prime member, I can get same-day delivery in over 5,000 cities around the world right now. So, and, and so Target's testing a next-day service in Minneapolis, and they think that's their foray into you know online delivery. So I, I'll put you down as skeptical. I think I'm purely skeptical. <laughs> I just I think today's reaction. I mean, it's the investors are looking. The market and investors are looking for any kind of positive news they can get from retailers that have been so beaten down. The traditional retailers. So if Target comes out and says. We're going to have a modest increase in same store sales. Modest to me means we're not negative, and maybe it's like one percent. I think that's the unfortunately the best that companies like Target, the big brick and mortar stores, are going to have to worry about. I mean, Target's in the midst of this seven billion dollar capex program to improve stores, improve the labor, and improve pricing, and get online. That's something Amazon doesn't have to do. They're already out there. They already have the biggest network effect, and I just don't know. I can see Walmart making aggressive moves. I think Target's even farther behind Walmart. I think with respect to the $7 billion program, it will be interesting to see if, A, the the private brands, the store brands that they're launching, gain any traction. They, they seem to be very excited about it. The, the recent one was Cloud Island, which is kind of baby nursery type items. They're very excited about the potential. I'm 
personally less excited about what that could do for the business. They're also excited about opening about 100 smaller locations in cities and college campuses. Well, that could be, I think, something, but it seems like that's what everybody is trying to do nowadays. Um, everyone can't be successful at it, but maybe smaller boxes are the way to go for their future. Um, but $7 billion is a big dollar. You know, it's a lot of money. And, you know, when I was an activist investor, if I saw companies throwing billions of dollars at something to try to revamp or save a business, it always, you know, put a, a question mark above my head. Have you gone to the Target out in Maryfield, Virginia, where the escalator carries your cart? I'm not no, I didn't it's, even know there was. It is, it is like voodoo Virginia. magic. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying that's going to protect them against Amazon. I'm saying that that is <laughs> that's worth what they the have. trip. That's their competitive advantage. I mean, I think that's Amazon strong. has no escalators. When Amazon has no escalators, there's another interesting competitive advantage potentially. Now, I, I don't think this is enough, but I was talking before our taping here with Emily, our colleague, and she said that Target. There's just a huge amount of discussion on this moms online group about how moms love to go to Target to escape. Okay, that's fair. So, is there is there a business model there? Um, there is a, <laughs> a for a much smaller fit, footprint, a much less market capitalized co- company, a much smaller company, perhaps. So okay. people people who want to escape and ride an elevator and an they call it a, that's, a library. That's, good. that's too. Target's business plan now. Okay, so I, I hear a lot of skepticism when you look at the stock. It has been a rough, rough go. It's lost to the market over the one, two, five-year periods. I guess if you bought back in 1989 and held, you're probably happy. <laughs> um, but when you look at the next five years, is this a market-beating stock? It's it's tough for me to say it is. Um, and if I can't say it is, then I usually default to saying it is inter. I don't know. You should stay away. Um, theoretically, it's cheap based on traditional valuation metrics and only 10 times earnings, where Walmart is 11 times, Costco is 16 or 17 times. However, it just remains to be seen what happens with earnings here. I just don't have visibility there, and therefore, it's impossible for me to project who really how this all shakes out. And therefore, retail in general is something that I would stay away from. There's much more certain places I can put my capital. I think you can go probably dip in and dip out of these probably over the next five years. Obviously, a lot of these stocks are going to get way cheap, and a lot of them are cheap. And so you can probably play a short term bump, but holding for a five year period, I don't think you're going to beat the market. Well, let's switch gears and talk some Uber. Matt, Uber is merging with Yandex in Russia. Yandex is Russia's leading search engine and also operates Yandex Taxi. What does this deal mean? This deal is, uh, well, it's it's for Uber, it's another sort of step back from a major market that they were trying to compete in. You recall, they did something similar with China when they realized that they were spending way too much money and the biggest competitor was winning. Well, the, well, the same has kind of happened in Russia. Yandex Taxi, which has been around for a long time uh, and does something over a billion dollars worth of gross bookings per year, has been a has been really a thorn in Uber's side the whole time they've been trying to compete in Russia. So Uber has kind of thrown up its hands and said, "Well, let's do the same thing we did in China. Let's form this partnership. Uh, we're going to take a minority stake in it. Uh, Yandex is going to have the majority stake, and the and the CEO of Yandex Taxi is going to actually run the business. And so, from Uber's perspective, it's a chance that they can still spread the the app, the network, uh, but maybe take uh, more of a, a private equity interest and kind of get rid of all the additional costs and marketing they would have to do to compete uh, with Yandex. With the, for Yandex, I think this is actually a really great deal. Uh, it kind of gets them it, it gets them a major investment in a you know a very important service and feature, an online feature, uh, something that uh, according to Bloomberg that's going to have something around 35 million rides a month. The combined company, uh, and so. I think it's another great feature for Yandex, and we can talk maybe about 
the qualities of investing in a you know Russia's leading search engine, but this is certainly a boost for them. Yeah, we were talking about that because you are a former Yandex shareholder, correct? I am. Does I am. this make you more interested in potentially um, buying some Yandex again? Because when we were talking before the show, I was asking you about corporate governance issues in Russia and to what extent, how does that stack up versus investing in China? Because I would just be scared at any point that Vladimir Putin could say, you know what? You've made a little too much money. <laughs> I'm going to take some of that. Well, I, I used to compare Yandex to Baidu in a lot of ways. I actually think Yandex, from a corporate governance, if we're just looking at the company itself, is is much better than Baidu. Uh, but unfortunately, the authoritarian situation in Russia is a little <laughs> more stringent than it is uh, in China. And it's and, and Yandex has sort of faced this. A few years ago, uh, the Kremlin uh, kind of came out and said, we're worried about the flow of information and the, and the warehousing of data that companies like Yandex have. And so, this put kind of cast a pall on the company. Uh, we also have sanctions against Russia. U.S. does, Europe, Europe, many European countries does. And this hurts Russia's economy. Yandex depends on Russian advertisers to, you know, for its mostly its, its core revenue. So there's just a ton of risks uh, to owning something like Yandex. If you have a steel stomach, though, and you sort of like the combination of emerging market and technology, you could do a lot worse than Yandex. Uh, it certainly has uh, it's a dominant position in Russia. 60% of Russia's internet search. It's held up well against Google, but you got to have a stomach for risk. Can we just talk about Uber just for a second on the uh, heels sure. of that? I feel like the bloom has certainly come off the rose recently. You know, they've expanded into their, their app into 70 markets. They've had to pull back, as we've talked, China being the most probably high-profile one now, Russia. The cultural problems the company has had, the CEO, um, a, lot, a lot of operational and cultural problems. I feel like um, the company is entering a, t- a difficult time. I mean, for, anecdotally, for the first time ever, I downloaded the Lyft app, which I had never even thought about before. Wow. And I don't know if, if that's, uh, you know, if the rest of, of America or, or the rest of the world is kind of feeling the same way. But d- d- am, I, am I reading it wrong? Is, do you think there's a hit to, to valuation? I've, I've got a contrarian take there because I think, I mean, obviously Uber has had a lot of problems. But if I'm, if I'm using Uber, yeah. for 98% of the people using Uber, Everything that's going on is internal politics, it's corporate culture stuff, but it doesn't necessarily affect their Uber experience. So, part of me thinks maybe this is the time. Well, you can't buy Uber yet because it's not an IPO, but maybe maybe the public sentiment has swung the other way too much. Interesting. I feel like even even the drivers are, are disgruntled, and they have been for quite some time. I don't think they like the way they've been treated. Lyft, I think, pays more. They yeah. prefer to work for Lyft. Um, it's just going to be interesting to for me to see pre-IPO what happens to valuations and and just things start to come down a bit. Well, I also believe that you got to think that as a consumer who's looking to catch a ride, I mean, it's something simple as that, you're going to want to try to go generally for the most convenient yeah. and closest person, right? So right. if that's Uber, if that's Lyft, or that's one of the dozens of other you know ride-hailing apps that have come out. Uh, I so I think Uber. In a way, has sort of it's not so much that the, the brand has been damaged by what's been going on with uh, you know the corporate culture there, but just in terms of hey, there's other competitors in this space, and it's not exactly the most you know the most proprietary technology you know ride hailing right. I mean, there's just other competitors as, as Ron pointed out. So, isn't it a matter of just hey, I just want a convenient ride that's quick, safe, secure, and is that Uber? Is that someone else? It doesn't really matter. And I think their window of opportunity to be the dominant player might be kind of fading. I will say, on my first Lyft drive ever, ride ever, I was charged double. And I'm not sure if I made the mistake or if they made the mistake, but they responded to my complaint, credited my account almost immediately. Great customer service. I've had a really good experience with Lyft as well. But I do Lyft, I do Uber. I go old school and do red top taxi. I mean, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, yellow cab maybe even. In and, and I can't. I can't go there. Yeah, <laughs> I have my standards. Okay. Okay. So our final story. Um, let's talk Snap. Speaking of a stock that has had a rough, rough run, Ron, shares of Snap up on Thursday after an analyst upgrade. So, Ron, you're a guy who used to work on Wall Street. So, I'm going to put this question to you. Don't remind me. As an investor, what do I do with news like that? If an analyst is upgrading a stock, in this case, Snap, how much should that mean to me? So, in general, analyst upgrades are not as important as I think the rest of the world thinks, especially from an institutional investor perspective. Institutions, for for the most part, do not care about the buy, sell, or the hold recommendation. They like institutional research for the analysts' industry knowledge, and perhaps even more importantly, the access to management that analysts have, because companies like to speak with management to help them understand the business better. That is more important than anybody's opinion of buy, sell, or hold, because all of these mutual funds and hedge funds, they've got their own analysts that will decide if it's a buy, sell, or a hold. So. On the, that's on one side. On the other side, we do see stocks move when analysts yep. upgrade or downgrade. So there has to be some kind of effect, whether it's a somewhat institutional and partly retail individual investor. For me, it's hard to say. I'm sure there have been studies, but it's not it's not nearly as important as some people think. Specific to Snap, I think the the bigger, more interesting story is that Morgan Stanley analyst, Morgan Stanley, the company that was the lead underwriter of the Snap IPO, downgraded <laughs> Snap stock recently. You don't really see that very often. A company who, on one side of the business, takes the company public and is recommending it as a result of taking it to the market. And then, shortly thereafter, the analyst saying, you know, we think... Um, you know, we may be wrong here, and we're downgrading the stock. And that, you don't see it, it because they don't, they don't do want to that. jeopardize that relationship. They don't want to jeopardize that relationship. Back in 2003, Elliot Spitzer, the Attorney General of New York, came in and put a very stringent, important wall in between analysts and investment bankers, and said you have to operate separately. There can't be this conflict of interest. Whether there still is to some extent, we could probably argue in a whole other show. But for the most part. That conflict has has a wall in between it, and it takes guts for an analyst to do that because the next time Morgan Stanley goes out to pitch business and says to a company, "We want to take you public," that company is going to say, "Well, are you going to support us with research, or are you going to come back a month later and hit us?" Um, and that creates some tension between research and investment banking at at the major banks. So as we wrap up here, let's talk Snap because before that upgrade, the stock had hit a new all-time low. Um, it's lower than its IPO price. It's got a bit of a competitive problem named Facebook. <laughs> so going forward, when you look at Snap, you know it's trading still near near its all time low. What do you think about the next one, two, five years? I feel the same as I did the day it came public. I said, unless you're really a social media expert and you have some way to look out five or ten years to see how these things shake out, then you really have no business being an investor in it because it's just speculation at that point, not investing. And I stand by that. I'll have to say, um, yeah, I, I totally agree with Ron, and I, I don't know Snap as well um, as, as a lot of investors. But I'd have to say the, the the sort of cascade of pessimism now that's surrounding it compared to the uber optimism of several months ago makes me think that there might be an opportunity at some point. Uh, it's just it seems like overwhelming, and I don't know if today's upgrade is is anything like that. But I'm just saying at some point there probably is going to be some value here. I mean, if Mark Zuckerberg wanted to pay $3 billion for this business at some point, now I know it's valued much more than $3 billion now, there's obviously value to the company, and Zuckerberg's doing everything he can with Facebook and Instagram to compete heavily with Snap. Uh, but there's a value here at some point that might be compelling, if okay. the pessimism builds too much. Okay, so my desert island question. On a desert island, you've got to buy one of these two stocks for the next five years, Snap or Target? 
<laughs> Without a doubt, I would buy Target because, at the very least, I think I will lose less money. <laughs> okay, oh we're all about losing less money. Matt, where are you going? I might take a flyer at Snap just because I'm almost convinced Target's going to underperform, and maybe with Snap, I have a chance at multi-bagger returns or losing everything, and that's that sounds more exciting to me. <laughs> okay, well there you have it, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Matt. Matt. As always, people on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Matt Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.